practice worship today. You know, we've already heard some of the account read and alluded to in our service in the events surrounding the Easter story, the events that Scripture record for us in what we call Easter. And by the way, when I say the word story, I don't mean fiction. We're referring to actual historical events that, that took place that are recorded for us in, in Scripture. This morning, I want to focus on one particular character, if you will, that is a part of this account, this Easter account. He's actually only in this story for a very brief period of time, but he makes a profound statement that for me over the last couple of three weeks or so have been dwelling on and thinking about. I want to talk about one of the men that was given the responsibility to be the person, one of the people that would actually carry out the order to have Jesus Christ executed. I've often wondered, bizarrely I suppose, what is it like to train to be someone who is given the responsibility to execute people? There has to be, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but there has to be some level of on-the-job training on how you do that. And I can't imagine, and understanding too, this Roman form of crucifixion, we often think about the cross. I have a cross behind me. There's a cross on the screen. We think about our image of the cross, and as believers, we look at that and we see hope. We see tremendous hope in the imagery of the cross. You might also notice, maybe you're new here at Grace, or maybe you've not been in churches very many times, but you'll notice that on our cross, there is no person hanging on that cross. The reason is because Jesus has risen from the dead. He is not on the cross anymore. We don't re-crucify him as part of some kind of religious ritualistic routine. It's not about that. He is risen. He is no longer on the cross. But when we think about the cross, we see hope. But in the Roman days, they saw pain and suffering and humiliation. The purpose of crucifixion was to make this almost as inhumane as possible. They wanted those that were being put to death to suffer and to suffer for hours and I, I can't imagine if you're, the, you're on the first day and you've been given the responsibility that now you are going to execute someone. And it's this first time that you have put someone on a cross. And we know that very often they would die from suffocation. They would eventually lose strength and the ability to keep their heads high enough to be able to breathe. And historians say that over time they begin to droop and then they would pull themselves up and just get a gasp of air. And I can't imagine being the person standing at the foot of a cross, hearing the screams and the agony and the desperation as this person tries to take another breath. I can't imagine that. And yet, on the day that Jesus was crucified, there was a man, more than one, but one in particular, who was given this task to crucify an innocent man. 
Now, understanding that this person who is referred to in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, as the centurion, that's how we know him, that's how we refer to him. And this centurion was a man who was by his very uh, job, was a Roman soldier. He was a person that was given responsibility to be over a hundred men. He was a leader. He was a hardened soldier. He had probably seen lots of people die. In fact, he had probably participated in an awful lot of executions. I can't, I don't know what that morning looked like for the centurion. I certainly don't know, but I wonder if he came into work that day and he took off the schedule and said, well, how many guys we got on the schedule today? Just another day at the office. But this turned out to be a very different day for this centurion. In fact, we also have to keep in mind, not only was he a hardened soldier, we have to remember something else about this centurion. He was indifferent to Jesus. It didn't mean anything to him. He was a Roman. If he was religious at all, he would have been probably an idolater. He certainly did not get caught up in the controversy surrounding Jesus. He certainly didn't know, or if he did know, he didn't care about what the Jews thought about this man. He was completely indifferent to it. And by the way, to put this in a little more historical perspective, in Palestine alone, the very small area in the Roman Empire, by the time that Jesus is crucified, historians tell us that approximately 30,000 men had already been executed. 30,000. How many was the centurion there for? I don't know. But to this man, he would have been just doing his job. During his duty. And yet, in Matthew 27, verse 54, I want you to see the words that the centurion speaks. Verse 54 of Matthew 27. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Now in Mark's account of this event in the Gospel of Mark, we know that Mark tells us that it was the centurion who said this. Here in in Matthew's gospel, it says they, in reality, what Mark tells us as he fills in the story for us a little bit, is it was the centurion who made this statement. It was he who made this remark to consider who Jesus really was, that he was, in fact, the actual son of God. Now, it begs the question, and at least it does for me, what got his attention about Jesus? What was it that led him to the place that he would make this particular statement? Well, as we will read in just a moment, we would certainly argue that the centurion noticed something very different about Jesus. He was a man who even on the cross, even while he was being put to death for crimes that he never committed, he was a man who was someone of character. I don't know how executioners were treated by those that they were putting to death, but I can't imagine it was a very friendly exchange. I can't imagine that very many criminals, no matter how guilty they may have been and no matter what crimes they may have committed, I can't imagine that they just surrendered themselves to this without without putting up a fight. 
And yet we know that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, as John said, behold the Lamb of God, that he went willingly to the cross and he did not speak against those that were executing him. Jesus went as the Lamb of God. But notice the people around this situation. And thinking through what was taking place, we'll get to the centurion in just a moment, but I want you to look back in, in, in Matthew's gospel all the way back to verse 38, because there's a couple of other people that we need to pay attention to, at least two. There's several, but at least two we want to talk about particularly. In verse 38 of Matthew's gospel, same chapter, then two ro- robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Some people have suggested, and possibly correctly, that the cross that Jesus was being crucified on was the cross that was intended to be for Barabbas. We know that he was one that was supposed to be put to death, but when we go to this this, uh, uh, trial before Pilate, eventually Barabbas is released, and regardless of the intention, we know that Jesus is hanging on a cross that is in between two men. Now, in the English translation, it says that they were robbers. Don't Don't read into that word too casually. These were men that didn't just steal a few cents from a vendor in the the streets. One word that could interpret this word into English is insurrectionist or rebel. Some commentators take it that these two men would have been known in their time as terrorists. Regardless of their actual activities and what they were doing, these were hardened men. They were hardened criminals. They weren't just petty thieves. That wasn't something people were executed for. These were men that were enemies of the Roman state, and they are being crucified in, with Jesus in between them. Now, notice what they are doing. Jump down to verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Initially, while Jesus is hanging there between these two men, these two condemned criminals, hardened men, are deriding Christ. We know, based on Luke's gospel, as he fills out this account for us a little bit more, that while both of them initially are reviling Christ, one of them eventually says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting to me that two, of, two men in this account that are hardened One, as he is dying on the cross, says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you will be forgiven. The other hardened man makes the statement that's on the screen behind me, surely this was the son of God. Wow, redemption truly is available to anyone. It truly is an act of mercy that this man, this robber, this person that could be known as a terrorist, a rebel, an insurrectionist, Jesus forgives him. And then the centurion, truly, this was the son of God. What's interesting about this title, the son of God, Let's go back and look at a few more people that are taking place around these events. Go back earlier to verse verse, uh, 39. 
of the same chapter. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourselves if you are the son of God. Come down from that cross. Now look at these folks, these passers-by. Who were they? Well, very likely they were Jewish people that had come to Jerusalem to remember the Passover. It's also very likely that there were Judeans and Galileans in this mixture of passers-by, understanding that when someone was crucified, they were crucified in a very public place, usually by a very busy road where many people would walk by. And as they walked by, those that were being crucified, it was kind of the spectacle to just see them hanging there in their agony, and people would make comments about them. But these people, many of these people, would have heard Jesus preach. They certainly would have been familiar with all of the miracles that Jesus had performed. Maybe they had even witnessed some. You see, they had been admirers until it wasn't cool anymore. Until now, he is hanging on a cross. And don't miss their accusation. You claim to be the Son of God. They're wagging their heads and pointing their fingers. You're a fraud. You're a fake. If you're really the Son of God, then come down from the cross. Mocking him. Deriding him. Passers-by. Just walking by arrogantly with condemnation on their lips, scorning him with the very title, if you really are the Son of God. It gets a little worse, actually. Because not only are there passers-by that are rebuking him and mocking him, notice verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. Now the religious people are chiming in. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of the Jews. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. This isn't in your Bible, but between verses 42 and 43, in my, not this Bible, but the Bible on my desk that I use, I wrote in very big, large words, would they? Would they? You know how many miracles they had already seen Jesus perform? In fact, some of the miracles that Jesus performed happened on the Sabbath day. And man, that was unthinkable. They knew that Jesus could perform miracles. How many more miracles was necessary? One more? If he had come down from the cross, would they have believed? Well, they didn't believe when he resurrected from the dead, so probably not. These are calloused cold, religious people who thought that their own self-righteousness could earn their way to heaven. And by the way, Jesus was not their version of Messiah. This is not how the Messiah was supposed to go. He was supposed to be a liberator to rescue them from the Romans and to rescue them from their oppressors, not to be crucified by them. What kind of Messiah are you? They didn't want to believe. They were calloused in their vain religiosity. Verse 43, it says, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Wow. These that mock him and revile him. And yet, in the midst of all this. By the way, 
By the way, I don't believe that the centurion was necessarily paying attention to what was going on around him. This was nothing new. It's not like he was listening to their comments and paying particular attention to what the people walking by were. In my sanctified imagination, he's just kind of hanging out, looking at his watch, saying, when are you guys going to die so I can get home? Just want this over with. But there is something about Jesus that he cannot get away from. First of all, his character, his difference as he is dying on the cross. But we also know that surrounding these events, there was tremendous, as Jeannie's piece talked about, there was supernatural events taking place. He's on the cross from noon until three, and at noon a darkness settles over the land, and it is like the middle of the night. And so there are these events that the, certainly the centurion would have been familiar with. And not only that, um, and down in verse, uh, let's see here, uh, 51, it says, Behold, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. The centurion wouldn't have known that. He would have had no way at this point in time to know that. But he would have known this. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So there are certainly supernatural events that are taking place, and that is why this centurion makes this statement, truly this was the Son of God. In Luke's account, The centurion said, certainly this man was an innocent man. The centurion, a person who was hardened, a person who had executed people for who knows how long. This was just part of his responsibility, part of his duty as a good Roman citizen. And yet there is something different about this Christ. We know that He saw something in Jesus that leads him to the place that he makes this statement, not in a way to ridicule Jesus the way the others had. You are the son of God. Not that. You are the son of God. This declaration of understanding who Jesus was. Now, in one of the other gospels, it tells us very specifically that the centurion makes this comment Only after Jesus took his last breath. That's an important statement. Because the theory has been out there, it's not new, it's been out there forever, that Jesus really didn't die. Well, not only were the centurions and those that were in charge of executing people very skilled at making people suffer and making people be humiliated while they are executed, they were very attuned and knowing and understanding when someone was truly dead. He was dead. He died on that cross. So it begs the question, this phrase, you are the Son of God. What does this have to do with us? By the way, the ultimate demonstration that Jesus was the Son of God came on that Sunday morning when he did rise again, when he did raise from the dead. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. 
But throughout history, we have known that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. So what is the response to this phrase, you are the Son of God? Let me just offer three. Number one, some people outright reject the idea. They would use the Son of God more in the vein of what the religious leaders use. You are the Son of God, sure. Or maybe more like the passers-by that are pointing their fingers and shaking their head. You're no son of God. Some might use that phrase just as a denial of who Jesus actually was. Some would assign this phrase, you are the son of God, in a flippant sort of cognitive way. Yeah, he's the son of God, sure. Yeah, okay. But I believe, personally, That the way the centurion uses this phrase is very different than mocking. It's very different than just a cognitive understanding of who Jesus was. Scripture doesn't say for sure, but it seems to indicate that when the centurion makes this statement, truly you are the son of God, this was the moment of his redemption. Now, Do we know that for certain, 100% sure? Scripture doesn't say. But it seems to indicate very likely that this was the moment of his redemption. If that is true, think about it. The religious people, the Pharisees, the scribes, they went home that night lost. They went home lacking redemption. They went home missing the purpose of Jesus' crucifixion. They went home no different, just religious but unsaved. Many of the passers-by, they just went home and went about their business believing that Jesus was just a fraud. No change, no different. He was just crazy, out of his mind. But the two hardened men... An insurrectionist, a rebel, a man who was known for thievery, a man who was a brutal criminal, that night was in eternity with God because of his faith in Christ. And the other hardened man, this centurion, a soldier, a man of responsibility, an executioner, tasted the sweetness of redemption. What a beautiful story. So the question for you and for me is very simply, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? The true divine Savior. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes unto the Father but by me. Many people reject that and say, wow, that's just very exclusive. Yeah, it is. He was the Lamb of God who was slain for you and for me, shed his blood for redemption so that all who believe in him might enjoy the same salvation that this thief experienced and this centurion experienced, that it's available to anyone and to all who would believe. Jesus is the Son of God. One of the miracles that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry that made the religious people of his day lose their minds was the man who couldn't walk. And before Jesus had him 
physically rise and walk. He made this statement to them. He said, your sins are forgiven. Oh, that was unacceptable. That's blasphemy. In fact, they even say in that context, who are you to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Jay's translation of it is, goes something like this. Jesus said, yep, you're right, I am. That's exactly who I am. I'm God. And just to prove it to you, get up and walk. And the man did. And by the way, they knew he couldn't walk. That wasn't a trick either. And the ultimate demonstration of the deity of Christ occurred that sweet first Easter morning when they went to the tomb and it was stated, he is not here because he has risen. We're going to have one last song this morning. Before Pastor West comes and leads us in that song, I want you to think in your mind, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Scripture says that only faith in Christ can save you from your sin, not religion, chief priests and others prove that not doing good works the thief on the cross never performed one good work he was never baptized he never experienced any of those things that people believe earned redemption it's only through faith in christ so this morning before you leave if you can't answer in your own heart in your own life that you at some point have put your faith in Christ alone for your redemption, I beg you that as I pray in a moment, that you even now would pray and receive Christ. It's not a complicated matter. It's just simply acknowledging you're a sinner, putting your faith in Christ and believing in him for redemption. And you may say, well, I'm a terrible, awful person. He saved two of them in this account right here. Two of them. He can save you. And that that sweet redemption is available to you. So as I pray, if you have never accepted Christ, I urge you to do so. If after the service you want you want some you have some questions about that, you'd like to get answered before you do anything, I'll be available afterwards. I would love to speak with you to show you how you can know for sure that should you enter eternity today the way our dear friend Ernie Lewis did this morning, that Ernie is with Christ this morning, you could be too through faith in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for these men that are recorded for us in scripture to see the imagery here of what happened at the crucifixion. We thank you that this account wasn't the end of the story, that that Sunday morning when the, the disciples and, and others went to the tomb, that they'd found it to be empty. And God, we thank you this morning that we serve a risen Savior that is risen and can forgive us from our sins. I pray that if there's one here this morning that is not sure of their redemption, that they would, even as I'm praying, Lord, that they would call out to you now and receive Christ. And maybe there's others that would want to talk after the service. I pray, God, that your spirit, even now, would be working in the hearts of those who know that they need to experience the same redemption that we see in this text. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and for the opportunity to worship together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor West. This morning we have spoken and sung the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, but the story of Christ does not end 
uh, with the resurrection. Revelation chapter 5 describes a scene that will take place in the future around the throne of God. And it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. So I wept much. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, a lamb as though it had been slain. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation." Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We're going to join our voices to the voices of that heavenly multitude this morning. We're going to close by singing this song, Is He Worthy? Many of you are probably familiar with this. If you are, please sing it. Uh, and even if you don't know this song, please do your best to sing it. It's, it's pretty easy. The song proceeds uh, with a series of questions and answers. I'll sing the questions, and if you would sing with us on the responses, uh, let's sing it together, Is He Worthy? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good for we remind ourselves of this?
of all blessing and honor and glory. Is he worthy of this? He is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit live among us? He does. And as Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those He loves, He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? Easter. Have a blessed week. You are dismissed.